Well, welcome back, everybody, to Live Longer, the podcast, as I continue in this third series, The Art of the Mind. And we are doing a little mini series on the war in Ukraine. And this started off with an interview, a sobering interview with my colleague, Dr. Larissa Dersko-Jelinski, last week. She has set up a program called Eyes on Ukraine to send vital supplies to the Ukraine for people who were caught in eye injuries in the war and also to send ocular supplies for people who have eye problems and who are not being treated for the purpose of saving vision and saving sight. Now, today I'd like to expand a little bit in this theme and get a sense of what type of eye injuries and what is the impact of these injuries and how is are be patients going to be supported psychologically? We've all been hearing the news and there's two to four million refugees coming this way to Europe. And so these eye injuries are not going away. They're going to migrate closer to our home doors. And are we equipped to deal with these patients? And what are the skills that we need? So I have a very eminent professor in studio with me and we're going to discuss topics such as training, inequalities of training from one part of the world to the other, inequalities in healthcare, particularly related to ophthalmological care. And then we're going to brainstorm about how we are going to help this mission of Eyes for Ukraine. So I have Professor of Ocular Inflammation and Infection from UCL here. He's also a consultant rheumatologist at Moorfields Eye Hospital. And I have to say he's a very good friend and colleague. And we have shared many a patient who suffers from inflammatory eye disease. And this person has a a world-renowned reputation as an expert in uveitis, similar to Dr. Dersko Jelinski and myself from a medical perspective. And we've worked together for many years. So it is a great pleasure to welcome here today, Professor Carlos Pavesio. Carlos, welcome. Bilisan, thank you very much for the introduction and, and especially thank you for inviting me to participate in your podcast. It's a privilege to be here. Well, thank you, Carlos, and thank you for giving up your afternoon today. I really appreciate it. And this is a very important time in the history of the world. It's a very sobering time. We're all feeling a little bit helpless here. Um, we're not obviously, you know, equipped to go into combat ourselves, um, but we are medics. And every day we're in combat in, in the medical world, trying to help patients. And, and in your particular subspecialty, you, your principal goal in life is to save vision. Now, with the war, I think it'd be useful for my listeners to have a little understanding about what type of eye injuries might some of these people from the Ukraine be facing. Can you give us some flavour of, of that? Well, I think the big issue we have in our hands is that any time you have a war, the, the type of injuries you see are going to be very different from what you see in your day-to-day -day activity in your profession. So we are very comfortable in our offices or our hospitals dealing with patients who come in for elective surgery. But in, in the situation of war, this changes completely. So we know of the, the, the problems confronted by the general surgeons with life and death decisions. Uh, but of course, uh, many patients can suffer as a consequence of explosion, uh, shrapnel injuries, uh, blast that will affect their faces and potentially their eyes. Uh, and, and these injuries can be devastating. They can they can really lead to blindness uh, immediately, uh, or as a consequence of further complications over time. So I think we we can see it could be from simple lacerations involving the, the external parts of the eye, uh, the lids, and 
conjunctiva, cornea, sclera, two, two injuries that will uh, go into the globe itself and then lead to more severe damage to intraocular structures and potentially these are the ones that, that can result in immediate loss of vision. So our, our, you know, our colleagues in the battlefield facing these patients uh, will have in their hands a situation of first having to save the life of, of the injured soldier or, or civilian, uh, and, and then, of course, also having to worry about the potential consequence of someone who survived but would have lost vision uh, because of the injuries they experienced. Mm. And presumably there's only a limited number of general eye surgeons, but, you know, in, in any one um, particular country at a time. So do you think we need to equip more surgeons and more eye doctors with the necessary skills to deal with these injuries, both on the battlefield and then off the battlefield? As I mentioned, a lot of these patients will end up becoming refugees and coming into Central Europe and we'll still have the same problem. It, it won't be going away. Sure. No, I think it's it's the, the two sides here. I think are absolutely right. I think there's the immediate need for individuals who are facing the acute situation to receive the correct equipment. I think this is where we we can see uh, colleagues, especially colleagues who, and if you interviewed Larissa in Canada, who has an Ukrainian heritage and 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 of course very uh, emotionally involved in this whole situation. So she's mm. rallying uh, friends and industry to provide the equipment necessary for the care to be delivered as quickly as possible uh, at the time of the injury. So this is very important because uh, without that initial approach, it may be too late for anything to be done later on. So this is really, really important. The training of the doctors is another important aspect. You can have the equipment, but if you don't have the training, you will still struggle to, to achieve your outcome. Uh, I think training in situations of, of acute uh, uh, situations like war is certainly difficult to deliver for several reasons. And it's really important, I think, the global vision that I take from this is a real realization that there is an inequality of, of uh, availability of high quality care. Uh, and that's something that uh, we should, especially institutions like Moorfields in London or many others around the world, mm. uh, be thinking more about how we can train how we can make sure that uh, there are individuals in all these different parts of the world capable of delivering care, not only in situations of war, but actually to the day-to-day -day for patients who require uh, care that is, is simple but not available and, and would result in, in significant loss of vision to uh, many people with, with a huge burden to society. And, and as you mentioned before, the fact that psychologically this has a huge impact on everybody's lives. Vision is perceived as the probably most important of our senses and, and, and people really uh, many times uh, feel suicidal in losing their vision. So without psychological support to allow these individuals to overcome that loss, uh, we are dealing with a very, very difficult problem in our hands. And you're right, refugees will be coming, they will be coming with different problems and we have to be prepared to help them uh, you know, in all the possible ways. Mm. And maybe this is one of the blessings of the pandemic that we had to innovate very quickly and transition from face to face in our own specialties, in our own little hospitals to help patients who were being seen remotely, to help patients who maybe 
hundreds or thousands of miles away. And maybe we can harness some of that technology now, both for the training, but also the deployment of care. So you can get Moorfields level subspecialty care, but delivered to the battleground or indeed to the regular ophthalmology services in some of these war torn countries. And, and this isn't just limited to the Ukraine, but it could be Syria and other parts of the world, you know, that have been struck by war in more recent years. You, you touch on a very important point. Uh, I think the issue of uh, suddenly realized, forced by nature with a pandemic that hits us all and, and forces to not to be able to move around anymore. Uh, we, we either stopped what we're doing completely or we were inventive and came up with solutions. And, and I think the uh, webinars came and, and took a bit of time, but of course, and if you remember, we did one of the first webinars mm, we did. in ophthalmology mm. together uh, when we were talking about the impact of COVID in the care of our patients in terms of the medications we're taking, in terms of the reorganization of services. And this was the fr- pretty, pretty much one of the first ones that we had in the UK, at least. Uh, and that kicked off a series of other webinars, all of them focusing on uh, that time uh, aspect related to COVID. But then from there on, there the, 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 the was a wide range of topics which were covered by these webinars, all of them trying really hard to uh, make sure that we were keeping up to date, that the knowledge wasn't you know, stopping because we couldn't meet in person, that we could still interact. And, and the reality is, when you look at that, how many people who normally would not be able to afford traveling, uh, uh, staying in hotels and to attend meetings and were left out of all this uh, learning process mm-hmm. could then uh, simply connect on a telephone or a computer and, and listen to these webcasts, uh, which were providing them with information that normally they wouldn't have access to. So I think there was a, a an interesting development coming from a necessity mm-hmm. to continue what we normally did uh, in a different way. And I think the same technology allowing us this communication at, uh, from, from very far uh, can bring to situations of uh, war the, the ability of, of people on the battlefield to be able to receive the, the instructions, the kind of training uh, to allow them to carry on uh, with activities that they were not totally prepared to do, but they can be guided uh, to be able to do them. So I think it is... It's interesting how sometimes we, uh, our, our ability to come up with solutions is forced by uh, situations which are out of our control. Mm, necessity being the mother of invention, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you mentioned one particular surgeon, a general surgeon, was it in Germany, who's been doing um, crash course training for the Ukrainian ophthalmologists, not not just ophthalmologists, general surgeons on how to deal with war injuries. Do you think this is something that maybe all of our trainees should undertake? You know, we all now have to do cybersecurity. We all have to do training in the event of a terrorism attack. But maybe we should all be doing some war training because, for example, in COVID, you know, patients used to present to me with joint pains, etc. But now I'll get patients with an eye problem or a skin problem and there's a history of COVID and my cardiology colleagues are getting joint problems and we all have to be a bit more general in our approach. So maybe another lesson from the pandemic and putting that together is, you know, more training to be more general in our approach rather than more siloed and specialised. What do you think, Carlos? Absolutely. The the, the, uh, the colleague that you mentioned is actually from, from London. He's David Knott. Oh. He's, he's a, a surgeon uh, who 
incredibly inspirational what he has done. He has been training individuals for uh, exactly these acute situations, war situations. He developed a program uh, that, that he can offer training for a large number of people. This is not necessarily during a war, but uh, as a regular training program, which is over like five days. But he has developed uh, uh, some some uh, modifications to this training, which allows it to be done in a very short time. He has done it for colleagues in Ukraine now. He condensed his, his five-day course into a 12-hour, solid 12-hour program that will allow people to see uh, how best to handle injuries. And and this is interesting when you listen to him, when he talks about exactly what you mentioned. We, we In a situation like that, you have to be the person to deal with any kind of emergency, even delivering babies in, in, in war, which is, you know, a lot of people might mm. say, well, I don't know how to do a C-section. Well, you have to learn to do one because you may need to, to know that. And, and the one point that, that he was making is that uh, without training, uh, people are taking actions that are actually could end up with mistakes and losses of life. And, and by doing these courses, taking this special training, you're actually reducing the number of casualties that will end up uh, you know, badly because you're allowing these people access to training, which guide them very simple, very pragmatic, but incredibly focused on solving the problems in, in a way that maximizes the chances of a, of a positive outcome for this individual. So mm. I think what, what uh, David has done is uh, really uh, an incredible example of how someone who's passionate about uh, this field uh, developed this, this way of uh, training people and is supporting them himself in the battlefield, which is really uh, extraordinary. Uh, and it's something I think you're right. I think you have to learn from these lessons and, and consider that potentially more of these programs, and we even think about programs specifically guided for eye injuries, could be created to, to allow people to improve the, 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 the outcome of individual suffering trauma. Mm. And, and does David have a military background? Um, presumably, many of the military physicians will have received crash courses such as this, as this because they have to be very uh, fluid in their approach and be the master of, of, of all um, trades. But I'm just sitting here thinking there's only a limited number of military doctors. But if the civilians were trained in war surgery and war medicine, then they could support the military doctors. Uh, and that would help, you know, maybe help some patients who had more minor injuries to get back out on the battlefield and those with more severe injuries to take them off so that they don't suffer loss of life, life and vision, for example, in eye complaints unnecessarily. Yes, I think the what what we are seeing now, especially in images that most of us are are witnessing now on our screens, which are very hard sometimes to to watch, uh, you can see that that people who are normally not providing care of this type are getting involved because they need everybody to get involved. They don't have the power, the the capacity to absorb this large number of injuries coming all at once. So I think the the more trained personnel you can get, the better the chances are that you can support the, the, the people with the skills to achieve the best results. I, I think the whole thinking, the reality is, uh, makes sense, that uh, this, this idea of war, as we're witnessing now, is something that we all believed was going to be just a, a history lesson. Uh, we're in the past, and, and suddenly this has been brought to reality in, in a brutal way, mm. uh, unexpectedly, and, and it's really shaking the foundations of everything we know uh, and is forcing everyone to think 
about what should have done differently, what can we do. But I don't think anyone was prepared for this conflict at the level we're seeing right now. Clearly, what David shows is that he's been going around the world in conflicts all over Syria, everywhere. Uh, so there are conflicts that we don't see the magnitude that we're seeing right now, but they're happening all over the place. So, yes, you're right. I think if we can train people to be capable of potentially going to these places, training individuals and providing the care supported by locals is a good way of trying to uh, improve you know, the, the, the outcome of all, all these the serious injuries we see. You're also right about the fact that our institutions back home uh, need to be prepared also to step in and, and in terms of supporting all these, these initiatives uh, in training and, and providing more direct action as well. Yes, and maybe supplies. And and before we get on to the supplies, Larissa's project, Eyes on Ukraine, I was just thinking as you were speaking, I mean, war 50 years ago, let's take the eye, you'll be talking about ocular injuries, blunt trauma. But modern day war, we're talking about the potential for chemical assault, nuclear assault, you know, and, and maybe the traditional surgical approach isn't even enough for that. And it needs a wider multidisciplinary input into the training and the crash courses that are going to be provided so that we're fully equipped for modern day war and also psychological warfare and cyber war. You know, I think the whole thing needs to be properly discussed and quick action taken. Yeah, I think there's so many angles to all these that are now becoming a reality to us. We are listening now to the threats that that uh, you can end up with war just to completely running away from conventional war into into really the frightening ideas of of what it could be. Uh, and uh, you know, I think that the, we can always prepare ourselves the best we can. Uh, we can always be surprised that that we could have done more. And we, we need to use and learn from the lessons and, and adjust our actions. Unfortunately, you know, sometimes the time is very limited for you to develop total new skills or, or ability to intervene immediately. But, but I think, you know, it's obvious that that war will never leave us. It's a nature of, of humans. It's a, a nature of a, a greedy nature of, of humans that want more and, and that generates conflict. So clearly war is a, is a is a problem that uh, this one may go away, but others will come. So, uh, as you say, you know, potentially a, a wider vision on on training and in, in how we can prepare ourselves for this different level of war, these different methods of war is, is something to be thought about more carefully. But I, I agree, we we are uh, going into the unknown. We we really don't know what to expect, and depending on which weapons are going to be used and how they're going to be. Uh, inducing more injury. And, and uh, unfortunately, this is, is, in my view, a, a lesson for the future. Uh, hopefully, a future that will not see many more wars. But, you know, we're surprised with this one. It won't surprise me if you have more. Yeah, exactly. And I think at this stage, a lot of people want to help. And as we've outlined, they don't have the skills. We can't deploy the training that quickly. But, you know, something like um, Larissa's project, Eyes on Ukraine, where funding can be assembled to either coordinators to coordinate the supplies, engaging with logistics companies and getting the pharmaceutical firms to help provide those vital supplies that are needed right now. Because I think this needs to be broken down into the acute and long-term stage. So in the acute stage, it's, you know, 
repair those injuries and get the people as good as you can get them. And in parallel, the training, the planning, the service provision can be ongoing. So how do you think somewhere like Moorfields could help eyes on Ukraine where there's this call for supplies? Do you think they could send supplies? Do you think they could use their brand name to maybe persuade some of the pharma companies to help? How could Moorfields help this effort? I'm sure that, uh, that there are many ways that, that we can uh, try to provide assistance. Uh, but I think you touched on something here that, that takes me wider than Moorfields. It's a situation then that what we think is because of the nature of the conflicts and the, the way they can happen anywhere in the world at any time, it would be maybe a good idea to consider if we could set up, you know, as, a, as an international collaboration, a proper uh, emergency response effort in which equipment, uh, expertise, support is all available in a very short time. You don't have to be uh, starting to go around asking people, can can you help me? Can you do this? Can we do that? It is a response that it should be planned. So once you have a situation of a crisis like this, there's a, there's a process that can be immediately triggered by which companies, institutions can, can get together with a well-thought plan in which the response is very, very quick. I think what we lack many times is our responses are we wait for something to happen, then we start thinking about the process by which we can do something. And, and all this is taking time. All this is, is a wasted time. Mm. And, and by the time we get there, a lot of people have already suffered the consequences of what's going on. So I think that what we need to think about now in a very clear way, and, and Moorfield as a, a leading institution in this field, has to consider taking the lead in, in trying to galvanize this, is to create really I can see as an emergency response uh, effort that would be already uh, well established and ready for action anywhere, anytime a conflict like this comes up. Hmm. So it would be a lesson to learn. I think we don't want to be rethinking this every time it happens or having to run after it every time it happens. I think we have to be ready and trigger the process hmm. as soon as we hear there's a problem. We know exactly what needs to be done, who's going to be doing it, who's going to supply what we need and where to go. So I think it's a, a, a very important lesson I can see that I think we have to consider. Mm, I think that's it's such a good point, Carlos. And if we've learned nothing else in the pandemic, we have learned about how to do clinical trials quickly, execute policies quickly, change our way of practicing. So if we just take the learnings and then translate that over to war, we already have a framework. We just need to get the right people around the table to take those learnings from the pandemic and put a structure around it for emergency response in times of war. Maybe that's something that you can take up and lead on and, and help people like Larissa, Carlos. Sure. No, I think it's a, it, it is a, uh, the more we're talking now, you know, all these ideas start to, to come even more to our minds about how, how, what can we do? How can we do it better? And, and I think the point is, uh, I will certainly uh, engage with my colleagues at Moorfields at a higher level to set up a way of considering how can we engage uh, internationally and lead on a, in a plan that will uh, help conflicts in areas of conflict in a, in a very fast way, providing all that is needed. And that will involve you know, agreements with companies that provide equipment, uh, you know, everything. So I think it, it's a, uh, it would be a very important thing to do. 
And I think a good byproduct of that will be that you will help mitigate inequalities across healthcare services and countries. Now, it's no secret that you're from Brazil and in Brazil, it's a huge country and there's much healthcare inequality as well as other inequalities. And so you're no stranger to this concept. And, and by having a structure that you've just outlined, that may actually help minimise the inequalities because you will be doing the training on a rolling basis. You will be looking at supply issues on a rolling basis so that you can plan for times of war. And that might be a really, really good positive thing to come out of this. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, um, yes, you're right. I, I, Brazil is a, is a wide country, is a continent and, and its own. And inequalities will happen inevitably. You know, you have areas of the country which are the same as the care you can get in the UK or anywhere. And there are parts of the country where the access is very difficult for geographical reasons, distance, but also for financial reasons. Patients do not afford, they cannot afford the, the cost of, of uh, the, the management, the treatments they require. And and that sometimes you know, institutions are not readily close to them so they can be seen by, by someone. So there is a, a huge problem. And, and I think the lessons that, that we all learn is we need to try to take the care closer to the patients and, and provide good quality care wherever they are. Uh, and, and this is part of a program that the country has to, to uh, coordinate, the government has to coordinate. When we're talking about the conflicts like this, this is, becomes more of an international reaction. I think we, we have to have something in place that will allow us to uh, respond very quickly to uh, these challenges that are in front of us. Uh, and, but also I think the idea of uh, bringing people over to, to our countries and providing the training that they require. So we do have a project at Morpheus of this international ophthalmology training for fellows from places where uh, they are really lacking the expertise. Uh, you know David Verity very well, a very yeah. good friend and colleague mm. from Morpheus who has very much uh, close to the, the St. John's uh, Hospital in Jerusalem. Uh, and David has been talking to me very frequently about this. We should be bringing people over, train them over here, provide the expertise they require so they can go back to their countries mm. and transfer this expertise locally. And, and this, this is where institutions like Morfield and others have to take the lead and really provide exactly this kind of training that will help many parts of the world to have access to excellent care. And it is exactly collaborating with people like David and many others that we can achieve that. Mm, I couldn't agree more. And you touched on something there as well, because clearly training is critical. But there's another element of this that we haven't really spoken about, but you briefly mentioned it, and that's patient empowerment. Now, times have changed. It used to be, you know, the doctor-patient relationship was more like master-servant, but now patients are becoming far more empowered they're smart, they're reading the literature, there's Dr. Google out there. So I think um, providing information to patients so that they can take action to maybe prevent injuries, having better preventative equipment so that they can administer emergency care even themselves, maybe another way, because there is, as you say, limited financial resources in many countries and particularly in a war-torn country. Now, you and I have innovated in that regard with um, our little tech solution, Iona, where we have a clinician-patient engagement solution where we can give the right information at the right time. And as you're speaking, I was thinking, gosh, this could be very useful and it's a way we could help straight away with all the ophthalmology content that we have in Iona. We could actually open that up and let the 
the people of Ukraine use it straight away so they can send information on an emergency base to patients because so long as the internet is up and running, thanks to Elon Musk and, and Google and all of the other internet providers, then maybe we can do more to empower patients. Yeah, well, what you're saying, there's an important point that is exactly connecting all this. If you're dealing with an acute situation, of course, there'll be all the, the emergency cases that we'll walk in who have to be seen and dealt with. But we can't forget that normal problems continue to exist and, and the patients need to be seen. Clearly, a war changes the focus of what you're doing. But if we consider not necessarily only war, but you consider uh, other, other situations when you need to be able to continue providing care to all the other people, I think what you've done with the IONA is really a very uh, useful, essential tool to be able to transfer information readily available in their hands that you can immediately convey to the patient. And as you say, the patient can, the patients themselves can get access to this information very quickly. And, and that is helpful because, uh, as you say, you can give them instructions about actions they may take, which will mitigate potential more serious problems just because they have that knowledge in their hands. So I think it is a, a, the idea of, of spreading this information, putting the hands of professionals, but also patients, uh, makes a lot of sense. Mm. I mean, as we continue to chat, um, I'm struck by, you know, the actual complexity of all this. And we've touched on a number of topics now, you know, starting off with the types of injuries, but also the background ophthalmological issues that are ongoing in the population despite the war. We've talked about training uh, both of the clinical personnel for war, but also training on how to operate and, and see people during times of war. And then we've talked about the role of bigger institutions around the world and the need to have a coordinated emergency response that we can execute more quickly. And finally, I think one of the most important topics is, is how we empower patients and also how we allay their fears, because this is a really scary time. I mean, we're all very scared over here looking at the pictures, but can you imagine being part of the war effort and also having a loved one if you can't get close to them and not knowing if today is the last day you're going to hear from them. So I think this is a the beginning of a very important discussion in the world health and, and well-being of our society. And I want to thank you so much for giving up your afternoon to come and talk to me today, Carlos. It's been really, really informative. And, you know, I, I hope that people will reach out and support you in your efforts and Larissa with her eyes on Ukraine and they can donate in our Just Giving page, which we'll post a link to. Thank you. Millicent, thank you very much. It was really a pleasure to be here and talking to you and, and discussing all these very, very important issues that, that we all have to deal with. And uh, definitely uh, many things uh, need to be done. And I really hope to be able to help uh, as much as I can from my end. So thank you again. And uh, I hope to speak to you soon. Thank you. Thank you, Carlos. And thank you to all my listeners. And as I mentioned at the beginning, this is a sobering moment in the history of the world. We'd encourage you to give generously to the Just Giving page we've set up for Eyes on Ukraine and also to keep your eyes and ears posted um, for the wonderful work that I know Carlos will do. Carlos is a doer, not a sayer. And if he puts his mind to something, I know that some really good will come out of this. So as always, please feel free to leave um, some feedback at hello at livelongerthepodcast.com and tune in next week when we have more on how to deal with the psychological impacts of war. Thank you so much and bye for now.